to this week's Is It Raining? I Had Barely Noticed edition of Spin Cycle. <laughs> oh, how we love to talk about the rain, a, a, a weather incident in this town. And it's always my favourite moment of any week to hear your theme for the, for the week. It's as much a surprise as it is to, to me as it is to our listeners. Though, so. It's basically, uh, you know, it's the, the highlight of me humouring myself every week, which is a sad reflection on, on what happens for the rest of the week. Uh, we are broadcasting from the unceded and rather wet lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Always was, always will be. I am Jess Lilly and in the studio with Crikey reporter Charlie Lewis. For the next hour, we will turn our attention to this week's media goings-on. And in about 15 minutes, we will be welcoming the Age State political reporter, Sumeya Ilambe, uh, to the studio to talk about what is involved in preparing for and covering a state election, given we have one looming on November 26, and uh, her great book on uh, Dan Andrews, which has um, been getting some fantastic write-ups recently, so we'll be hearing about that. I think she's very well prepared to cover this year's election. First, in some good news, <laughs> there was a really interesting little episode of the 7am podcast. I think it was out last week and I missed it, but I listened to it on the way in here and it was titled Decline of the IPA, <laughs> How the Right's Favourite Think Tank Ran Out of Ideas. And it, it's just a fascinating 20 minutes um, sort of talking about the history of the IPA, how it sort of came out of um, business, a business group really, funded by big business. Uh, and um, as, you know, any of us who are um, sort of avid, uh, engage regularly in kind of the media, especially commentary in this country, no, it um, certainly um, became sort of the, it funneled a lot of people into the sort of commentary space in Australia and, and sort of in terms of, um, you know, um, go the go-to kind of think tank for any sort of conservative yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then they were ideas, all often policy ideas. Young, relatively well-presented guys, or not not all guys, but like a lot of them, uh, quite good talkers, quite charming, quite good presences. Um, yeah, yeah. I, was, I mean, the, the uh, this this I actually wasn't aware of this. I haven't I haven't caught up on it. Uh, but I just thought, well, that's very bad news for the ABC when yeah. they need a, a right <laughs> talk head on the, on the drum or the, or the Q and A because <laughs> they will be on telly when at a I, very short time notice. When I said f- funneled them into the media, I pretty much meant the ABC. <laughs> um, but yes, oh, no, and, and Sky News, and Sky News. Yeah. And the, well, the, yeah, it was interesting. This podcast was basically saying, well, the seven a, edition of Seven AM is sort of saying that big business really isn't interested in funding them anymore. They just don't have the the, just, yeah. the 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 space and the funding and the time to actually foment kind of new directions, and it's just yeah they've run out of ideas. That's really interesting. There's, I mean, there's a lot there that um, the right because obviously Gina Reinhart famously mm. uh, bankrolled them a great deal for a long time, and I'm wondering if that if that tap has been turned off as well. And she's but, got her own. Um, what, what did you, comedy books? Doesn't she? <laughs> she, she does. She does. Yeah. Well, it's funny actually. This 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 week, the other thing that that uh, it's a slightly tangentially related point, but it, uh, but 
in in the US, you're seeing a, a big explosion of what appears to be local newspapers uh, in sort of like a lot of kind of key areas of uh, the upcoming midterms in places like Arizona, um, that if you look closely at, they're actually being funded by a, um, a PAC, a, a, a PAC for Saving Arizona oh, yes. that's actually backing the local uh, Republican Senate candidate and it's being paid for by, among other people, uh, tech billionaire Peter Thiel, who, who mm. famously um, – sued Gorker out of existence, which is really uh, so it's an interesting moment. It's like, well, maybe uh, people of a certain level of influence and with a certain amount of wealth are thinking, well, let's cut out the middleman. Why, why would I bother funding a think tank when I could just do something of that sort? Directly fund the politicians. Well, well, in, the, well, in, the, in this case, the, or the, the assemblance of news. The, mm. the, oh, yeah, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I see what you're saying. Who knows? Who knows in this country... Yeah, it yeah, doesn't. It's going to have an application. I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, you have a figure like Clive Palmer who twice has sort of managed to get people into the in 2014 with quite a decent amount of success. Quite a few people of his got into the into the parliamentary system. Obviously, less so in the last election. Um, but it's, so, yes, it's interesting. Will, will that kind of thing translate into into similar moves? But to a great cost, and to what effect? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then in other sort of – and the other thing that sort of stood out to me in terms of um, just um, media coverage, talking talking blanket generalities here, obviously, but um, if the op-eds and front pages were anything to go by in the last week, you'd think this – it would seem that this country is much more concerned about the government uh, potentially breaking a commitment or a promise, breaking a promise – to implement um, the, you know, uh, tax cuts policy, which was not of their making, and obviously now in economically uncertain times, um, then they are. Then we are about the revelations that the Queensland Police Force is rotten to its core. And to be honest, as you said before, Charlie, quite possibly, <laughs> it's quite possibly true. But you know, there there've been a lot of polls to suggest that actually not people aren't that concerned about the the breaking of the the tax cuts promise and i think mm. you know my again my question and it's one of the things i always bring up on this show is um you know why is there such you know, really kind of passionate editorial groupthink over one topic, the yes, tax cuts yeah. promise, the election promise, mm-hmm. you won't be trusted, you know, very this one line being driven by a lot of kind of op-eds, whereas the, the Queensland Police Inquiry, which, whoa, some of the revelations that came out of that, um, I mean, it's, it's been a constant sort of um, news topic on The Guardian and on their um, podcast, but... Yeah. You know, the incidents of racism, sexism, assault, mm. abuse. And at, at the very core, at the very uh, core of how you learn to be a cop in, in uh, Queensland. Uh, yeah. Allegedly, according to according to the, the um, evidence in this in the inquiry. Yeah, and you think it's it, front page just... fodder for, tab, you know, for journalism, but it just doesn't seem to have it's, – it's making ripples rather than crashing waves, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it is an interesting one. And I think – I mean, it's, it's, it's another classic example of, of um, uh, a kind of – the invisible process by which people say, well, we're just reporting. Because I mean, when I said I think people do genuinely maybe think more about like hip, the, the old hip pocket question. Mm. Um, but, and that's the, the argument that, that um, newspapers and, and you know, uh, networks often use is, well, this is just simply reflecting back what the people uh, want to hear about. You as mean though, with the tax cuts? Yeah, yeah. For example, as an example, but, mm. you know, this goes back to climate change reporting or gaff reporting or things like that. And it's always reported as though, that, that 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 is always that defense is always mounted as though the media itself played no role in shaping yes. what it is that people care about. Yes. Um, yeah. No. So that that in any way, of course, you know, the the argument would be uh, that you know a, a Victorian based out, uh, outlet wouldn't report on police matters in Queensland. 
Well, you'd think so, yeah. but it's amazing how many Queensland front pages were dedicated to Dan Andrews yeah. <laughs> during yeah. the pandemic. I mean, <laughs> it depends that, you know, there does, the states do tend to weigh in on topics oh, yeah. that yeah. Um, suit, so, you know, mm. suit their kind of editorial agenda, or not states, but interstate, uh, you know, papers certainly do weigh in. I, you know, I just think that I wonder as well. Um, you know, because some of the, like I was saying, some of these revelations are brutal, but they're not. And they were. It was what to me what was so full on about them with the the inquiry into the Queensland, Queensland Police Force was the com the how how you know a lot of people obviously decided this was the time to speak out, mm -hmm. and there were so many um, sort of incidents, um, just too many to point at. You know, just one or two incidents. It it, it pointed to a, it or points to a deep and sustained institutional violence within the force mm, and attitudes, mm. um, not just attitudes but actions. And you know, yeah, I, I I just wonder as well: is it because it's the police? I mean, is it is it that there is you know one one institution is loath to call out? <clears throat> you know, endemic or systemic um, breakdowns in another or or in the police. Yeah, no, it's a fun, but anyway, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you, as you say, broad generalizations aren't always yeah, very helpful. Absolutely, these of course. But, but, but I mean, certainly, I mean, uh, particularly with uh, you know a a more conservative uh, news. Uh, filter, shall we say, with a slightly older, more conservative readership, they probably are going to be loath to mm. to um, attack an institution that is reasonably highly regarded among the, the, the who they imagine their readers being. Even if that does do a disservice to them as as news consumers, uh, and uh, it's something that I'd be um, really um, interested um, to talk about when we when uh, our guest Jasmia comes into the studio in a moment. You know, police is such a um, you know the, the policing is 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 a, such a uh, an electoral issue, mm, and mm, it you know and it's always presented as a security law and order law a safety measure. Mm -hmm. um, I again I find it really interesting. We talked about this a lot, and there were lots of different issues. How one hand can't seem to talk to the other, <laughs> you know? Right, right. How you can hold up the the you know how you can present this as a really um, as a politicians can present police funding and new jails and um, and that sort of thing as something to keep the community sta safe. Whereas mm -hmm. on the other hand, we're seeing these you know deep problems within a police force. And mm -hmm. I know I'm mm -hmm. not comparing Victoria to Queensland. These revelations have no, come no. out. Although, in although you know there have been some real revelations mm -hmm. about the, the Victorian police and all, all police. Are, you know, and there is something that maybe goes along with. A bureaucracy of that sort, with that kind of power, you are mm. always going to have issues of that sort. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that 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 polemic, you know, that exists. Mm, mm. Triple R. Samia Ilanbi. Always. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, began her reporting career at the Star Weekly in the West in 2014. For the last four years, Samia has been writing for The Age, where she became state political reporter in 2019. Samia has a new book out in time for Father's Day this year, a biography simply titled Daniel Andrews and subtitled The Revealing Biography of Australia's Most Powerful Premier. And it's been described as a tour de force, is getting rave reviews with one proclaiming it will be read for decades to come by people who want to understand this era. With the Victorian state election a mere six weeks away, who better to talk us through how 
to prepare and how it might be covered by the media. Uh, welcome to Triple R, Samir. Congratulations on the book. Um, we were just talking off air about how quickly you uh, were required to turn that around um, and for it to be getting the reviews it got. That must have been a really intense, deep dive into uh, Daniel Andrews' time in politics because it's actually quite a long time now, really. Yeah. So um, as I sort of mentioned, I got commissioned to, and I, I don't think people actually realised how little time it was. I had to write the book. But, yeah, I got commissioned by um, the publishers, Ellen and Unwon, in late October. So I really started sort of researching, interviewing in November and had to file my first draft by February. That is insane. I learned a lot about the Labour Party. I learned a lot about Victoria. I learned a lot about the great split of 1955 as well. Wow, you really... All all you Bob Santa Maria fans out there, you've got something to use there. Exactly. (laughs) I'm interested to know how you approach writing a biography of someone who's still very much a, um, you know, whose story hasn't finished, you know, very much a public figure, very much their political career is in full flight. Um, so how, how do you, how do you approach that? Yeah. And I think that is, um, one of the biggest difficulties. And I, you know, I remember before the book came out, I was literally having sleepless nights. I'd wake up at 2am and could not go back to sleep until 5.30, 6am because I was dreading the fact that, you know, I didn't include the fact that, um, several ministers had resigned in the middle of the year and I didn't really record the, um, you know, some of the changes in the electorate or some of the changes in the community and the way that they were looking at politics over the last couple of months. And I think one of the problems is, like, I spoke to about 60 to 70 people for the book. Some are obviously on the record, some are off the record, some are on background. And there are things that, you know, people can't be sometimes as fulsome or as wholesome Mm. about their answers because this is still a very powerful Premier who's seeking a third term. Um, And I think that was one of the challenges. So it was just really trying to extract as as much information as you possibly can, even though you know that, you know, um, Labor figures obviously want to win Mm. the election, so they have to hold back on, Mm. you know, on anything. Which which does raise the question, I suppose, in terms of how this, how writing a book like this sort of impacts you as a a day-to-day jobbing journalist. Um, Did you find that there's any difference between the reaction you get when you write something in a book about someone as opposed to when you write a day-to-day news story um, in terms of, I don't know, it just seems like this thing may be a bit more permanent and authoritative about this is the biography rather than this is the kind of first draft which we do in day-to-day news. Yeah, I think I'd actually say my day-to-day news reporting evokes a lot more um, emotion in people than what the book has. Oh, interesting. And I think it's because the book is 300 pages, you know, um, I have to write the good and the bad mm-hmm. and it's encapsulated in those, you know, in that one book, but with day-to-day news reporting, um, it's, you know, it's just one event in time. People are really emotional about that particular event. It's, you know, it's newsworthy. Everyone's talking about it. It's fresh in people's minds. Um, so I wouldn't say, yeah, I think there are different challenges, I guess. To yeah, yeah. yeah, and there's and it's also the, the you are able over the course of three hundred pages to include nuance and depth that doesn't always isn't always allowed to you in a day to day kind of reporting situation. I'm um, speaking of day to day reporting. Obviously, we've got a state election coming up really soon. Um, I guess for listeners who don't really aren't, aren't aware of the process that goes through, 
Uh, talk us through what it's like planning for a state election. Mm. How far ahead do you start doing it? Because obviously most most news reporting, political or otherwise, is often a mix of proactive and reactive. Um, when, with a state election, you've got you, you know four years ahead of time when it's going to be happening. When do those conversations start happening, and, and what do they involve? What, 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 does, what does that planning look like? Yeah, so I think um, I'm not sure if you know your listeners have seen the age this week, but on the Monday, citizens' agenda. Yeah, the mm. citizens' agenda. So work on that began literally. I think like a few weeks after the federal election, right. the editor was like, "We need to plan for the state election. Try and get out of this horse race mentality. What are the issues that people care about, and how do we cover the policies in depth, and how do we sort of talk about the things that people care about." And for that, there are about five or six journos, including, you know, um, former Triple R host of this show, Najma, who went around, <laughs> who went around the state, basically vox popping people. What are the issues that it's essentially market research? What are the issues that you care about? What do you want politicians to answer? What do you want journalists to answer? And sort of collating this in a Google Doc, which was. Very many pages. It was very messy. I tried to read it. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, sort of just reading that Google Doc, obviously, writing the stories, you know, the five of the six key themes we identified. And then um, I think for us as reporters particularly, because we're day-to-day, it's just, you know, we wake up and we're like, oh, my God, what story are we going to cover today? Mm. Mm. You know, what's my idea? I need to pitch something Mm. to my editor. Um, But I think, yeah, we're just trying to be like, okay, in health, what do we cover in health? You know, what are the policies that we're covering around population growth, for example, and just being, I guess, a bit more mindful of yeah of those issues were you um were the the issues that sort of came to the fore because i i think it's great i think it's a really great approach given the criticism and and we had and a lot of people had about the state ele- the sorry the federal election reporting that didn't seem to bear out also with the way people voted in that the you know climate crisis whilst it it sort of geared up right towards the end when it's when it became apparent that a lot of the teal candidates were going to give a lot of incumbent um liberals a run for their money a lot of the agenda, though, was very much about the personalities of, of um, Morris and Albanese and, you know, trying to trip them up and that sort of thing. So I, when I saw this on Monday, I was like, this is fantastic. Were you surprised um, by some of the things that came out from from these Vox Pops and from this kind of survey of all the citizens in terms of what's important? Do you think that if you hadn't done it, you might the paper might have reported differently? Um, I don't know if we would have reported differently because I think the issues that were identified, I don't think it's completely out of the blue. No. You know, when you're sort of with family or friends, like what's everyone talking about? Oh, my God, petrol's going up to $2 mm. again. The fuel excise is coming off. Or, you know, interest bro- rates, yeah, health, interest hospital, r- being able to get a GP appointment, all that stuff. So I think we all sort of instinctively know what the issues are, but I think this frames our mind in a way that these are the issues that are important. We've done the research. We've obviously done the polling as well. We've done our own Vox Pops. And I think it's just giving us journos and the paper a bit of a, um, a bit of a framework these are the things that we should be sticking to. And if you do, and like newsrooms are very busy places. They're very, very stressful. News happens all the time. You have to cover the breaking news of the day. But I think if we sort of, you know, if you have those quiet days and you're just thinking, okay, 
is my reporting and are we doing enough to, on health, for example, or are we doing enough on cost of living? I think it gives you a bit of a, um, like a checklist. Mm. There are two horses. <laughs> <laughs> Matt and Dan, Matthew and Daniel, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, there must still be a little bit of a, a kind of a desire to, um, to kind of to pursue that that kind of mythology as well. What what? How do you see that playing out over the next six weeks? As in the coverage of those two yeah. leaders, yeah. And I think this is the question that we sort of grapple with as journos as well. And I, you know, um, like I've asked, how much weight do you give to ex candidates' policies? when we know that they're not going to form government, for example, mm-hmm. or when you know that the chances of them um, winning that seat or that upper house seat is very, very slim. How much weight do you give to each candidate's policies? And I think, you know, the short answer to that is based on merit. Like mm. if it's um, if it's worth reporting and if it's newsworthy, you do report on it. But, yeah, I think given the way that our elections work, it is going to be either Matthew Guy, who's Premier, or Daniel Andrews, who's Premier, and they're well. going to be the leaders. <laughs> <laughs> is there a third horse? Who's the third horse? No, I mean, I just – it's very – in terms of either or – like something – it would have to be pretty phenomenal, wouldn't it, if it didn't go one way? Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. But I meant just theoretically. Yes, of course, yes, the yes, way yes. that our system works. It's either the leader of the Liberal Party or the leader yes, of the Labor Party yes, who, yes. who can become, you know, the next Premier. Um, Third horse would be great. I know, it would be. It would inject you know? some more fun. Well, I mean, I mean coming this, up this the straight. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 I guess one of the things to watch this, this time around will be, will the teal wave be able to replicate what it did at a federal level um, in, in the state election, obviously in Victoria, but it was a very big presence. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the Greens in like Richmond or Albert Park, for example, mm-hmm. or even in Northgate, and obviously there are going to be, you know, um, candidates like the Teals or the Greens candidates or, you know, the Upper House is probably going to be a very mixed bag. And I think you're completely conscious of that and you mm-hmm. have to be conscious of that when you're covering those seats and those candidates. But I meant more in terms of like statewide... Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah statewide yeah. implications. How different is it covering a state election from a federal election? What are the what are the greatest differences, do you think? So I covered two state elections prior to this. One was when I first started at a local paper. It was a safe... Shout out to the Star Weekly. <laughs> yes. It's delivered to my little box. Melton, Melton. <laughs> oh, Melton, okay. I'm Melton's in, I'm finally in interesting. It was a safe Labor seat while I was there. Now it's started oh, right. to be an interesting target seat for Labor. Um, so, yeah, when I covered the election in 2014, it was a safe Labor seat for a local paper. So my focus was very local. And then I joined the aid just before the 2018 state election, so I wasn't necessarily really engrossed in that. And I've helped out on federal elections, but I haven't been the main reporter. But I would... I guess the thing is, when you live in the state that you're covering, it is much easier to understand what the actual issues are. Mm -hmm. You know what your friends are talking about and you are focused on policy because you are living through the whether it's, you know, the strain on the healthcare system, whether it's, um, you know, like cost of living, like you deeply understand the issues that are mm. unique to the state and you don't have to focus mm. nationwide. And we know, you know, the problems in Queensland, for example, are very different to Tasmania yeah. than to WA. Which is interesting, actually, the way, when you 
put it like that, there is often a criticism of the sort of, um, you know, the Canberra Press Gallery, um, sort of the fl- that fly in, fly out mentality and sort of choosing to push certain um, stories. And, yeah, you're right. I mean, it would be very hard to report locally without having your own understanding of your own hometown and your family mm-hmm. and your community's understanding kind of come into that. Um, do you, you know, how are you preparing personally into as now that you are the state political reporter? What what is your focus? As in, in terms of sort of just policies or how I plan? Yeah, to... I mean, does it has it? Yes, I should refine that question. Has your research for your book and and obviously you know your very detailed understanding of Dan Andrews will that influence the way that you report? Um, I think I have, I have learnt so much about Victorian politics. Um, I have learnt so much about the history of, you know, um, like when Labor won again in 99, that Jeff Kennett's unlosable election. Mm -hmm. Mm. And then again, when Labor lost the unlosable election Mm in 2010, and I didn't cover that tumultuous period of Bellew and Napthine. So I think it helps me in understanding what the issues are. It helps me also understand and see Daniel Andrews for what he is and, you know, when he decides to weigh in and when he decides not to weigh Mm. in, um, when he decides to, you know, seek health advice from the chief health officer for pandemic restrictions (laughs) and then uh, just doesn't when he wants to get rid of the pandemic (laughs) declaration because there's an election coming up. I think it's just made me more attuned to... Yeah, just to politics and understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Talk us through, I guess, in terms of the the personalities you deal with, talk us through a little bit. um, One of the challenges I've always found when I've covered elections uh, for Crikey is that it's an interesting kind of dichotomy that you're in with politicians because they are both the most available to you that they will ever be. They are the keenest they are ever going to be to talk to a journalist because they obviously want their name out there. But they're also the most on that they'll ever be, the most likely to try and spin you or to try and influence your reporting in some ways. I mean, I'm just just interested, I suppose, how do you navigate that process? Yeah, I think when I sort of go to a press conference with this burning question, um, I know the politician isn't going to answer my burning question. (laughs) So I'm not necessarily going to that press conference hoping to extract information um, that's going to, you know, damage the politician. I think the point of those press conferences is to sort of scrutinise their announcements, scrutinise their decisions and say, okay, but you know, you've announced X policy, what are the implications for X, Y, Z? And it sort of forces them to really understand their policy, explain their policy, um, and it's up to the people to decide whether or not they're happy with that answer. So I think that's always been my approach to press conferences, Mm -hmm. scrutinising that politician statement and the announcement. Uh, I forgot the rest of your question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I suppose, I mean, I think the thing that I sort of thought of, uh, what kind of came flooding back to me as as we were kind of getting ready for this interview was, uh, and and obviously you you didn't kind of, you didn't follow it that closely as you just started at the age, but the last election, one of the things that kind of sticks out so much to me about the role that the media played Mm. in that in particular was the number of candidates who had to pull out of the race mm. because damaging revelations about, say, their social media history. Often it was their social media history. 
kind of came out. And I and I always wondered the dirt unit, the, mm. yeah, well, and, and, and and dirt units and things like that. I mean, we we can't be naive about this. We know that they exist and that they. Mm. Um, and I suppose I'm just very interested in terms of, uh, without wanting you to either get too specific or not specific enough. Um, yeah, navigating the the public interest of, of 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 information like that when it comes your way. Yeah, I think that's really hard, and I think journals need to be quite um, robust, and they need to be. Um, they need to be scrutinising that information and assessing, is it in the public interest? How important is it? And, yeah, I think it's just so hard because it's literally, you know, it might be a Labor dirt unit or a Liberal dirt unit mm-hmm. or a Greens dirt unit, obviously, um, you know, uh, saying nasty things about their opponent. Mm-hmm. And these things are going to happen, but I think it's assessing, you know, is it in the public interest? Like the Catherine Deves Twitter account mm-hmm, popping up, mm-hmm. that was presumably coming from a dirt unit, whether it's inside the, La- the Liberal Party or the Labor Party. Mm-hmm. Is it in the public interest that the Australian public knows about Catherine Deves's Twitter accounts when it came to, you know, um, like the transgender community? Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. And, 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 and so, yeah, and it is a tough one, I suppose, also because once you've, once you've opened that box, yeah. suddenly everything has to be assessed through that. So that's obviously, you could argue, 100% in the public interest. But then it's like, is an off-colour joke that someone has made that could be taken in a few different ways? Yeah. Is that in the public? Yeah, no, it's, it's mm. another thing, as you say, it's a very tough one to to assess whether that's... Uh, the pro- Yeah, and also and knowing the, the, um, uh, the motivations of the people who are yeah. giving you that information as well, obviously. What is the plan with the citizens' agenda? How are you going to, you know, map out the coverage? Obviously, understanding that stories can come up and and become a runaway train. How are you going to? How is the age committing to following through on reporting these issues that you know Victorians have said? This is what's important to me. Editors who are constantly on our back saying, "Where's your story on health? Where's your story on integrity?" <laughs> I see. <laughs> uh, no, I think <laughs> um, it's good though. I mean, I think that's what we want. Like, it, we'd love any insights that you can give our listeners because we all, you know, we all read and we all. But but you never know what's going on behind the scenes, you know. Yeah. So I think you know, like two weeks ago, I think it was either last week actually or two two weeks ago, the editors sort of assigned everyone, um, not everyone, but about six or seven journos, you know, the health reporter, you're going to do an explainer on health and we need you to also come up with a story this week in the health round yeah um and again you know for me and my state political reporter colleague paul sakal we had to do an explainer on integrity you know we had one on population growth we had one on the economy we had one on uh cost of living and i think it's just you know, so we, we come up with those story ideas, we come with those stories and then, um, you know, like every day obviously our editors are in a news conference at 9am and they'll go there and say, Samaya's pitched this story or, um, you know, X reporter has pitched this story. And I think because we've made, you know, a huge song and dance about the citizens' agenda, it's also <laughs> on their mind as well. So when they come back to us with, well, you have to do X, Y, Z, or when they're commissioning us um, mm. to do stories, they're thinking about what haven't we covered enough, what mm. do we need to do more of. And because you can go onto the um, – there's like a little – 
thing on the website. You click on it and it'll show you how many stories that we've done in the cost of living space, for example. So I think it really holds us accountable and there's a visual representation that everyone can see on how well we've been following through that. Mm. And I think when you have editors who are committed to the project, as obviously the editors are, because it's been, you know, driven by gay. Um, I think that sort of keeps all of us accountable and it makes sure that we're getting commissioned a lot <laughs> by editors in those spaces. Um, we talked a cu- about a couple of, you know, unlosable state elections and, you know, everyone is kind of betting on this one being a bit of an unlosable one for Dan Andrews. But um, we have seen um, shock results in the past. What do you think could, if anything, be his undoing? This election or the yeah, future? Yeah, this, this, <laughs> this election. Um, I think the thing that, again, we didn't see it play, it play out at the federal election as much as what the Liberal Party said it was, but this anti-Dan factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was because, and I touch on this in the book, yes, there was anti-Dan sentiment. People just didn't want to see his face and, you know, him harping on about COVID and lockdowns and restrictions. But I think the uh, reaction to Scott Morrison... <laughs> yeah, the anti-Scott... The anti-Scott <laughs> yeah. factor was, was so much more stronger and mm. more pronounced than the anti-Dan factor. <coughs> Sorry. No, you're OK. <clears throat> and I think the the thing now that, um, you know, people inside the Labor Party say all the time is, yes, there still is an anti-Dan factor, particularly in the western suburbs, in the northern suburbs, Um and not as the much protests are still happening protests, every week. Which... Yeah, and there's obviously like anti-Dan sentiment in the southeast. But one person inside the Labor Party said it's more stronger in the western suburbs and in the northern suburbs because in the southeast there is still. They sort of spoke of the demographics and also like the manuf- – oh, I don't know if it's manufacturing, but there's still a lot of blue-collar work out in the southeast, mm. particularly compared to the west and the north. Um, so yeah, I think we'll see that play out. Labor's expecting to lose a couple of upper house seats and that sort of the upper house obviously reflects the primary and the strong, um, yeah, and the strong results for any candidate or political party. So I think there will be anti-Dan factors and anti-Dan sentiment and it'll obviously play out in a state election where Dan Andrews is running. Mm. And I suppose there is that element, you know, that we could see something similar insofar as in the federal election it seems like the voting patterns were much more of a repudiation of the of the coalition rather than an, a, a ringing endorsement of Labour and you could see something similar maybe in the breakdown in the state election. One thing I was interested in, you know, and having sort of you, you hinted at what might be his undoing in the future. Um, and I think it's just so interesting. You, I mean, in a way, you couldn't have picked a better time to be a, a Victorian state political editor because you've got this incredible prominence that we've had over the COVID era of all the various state leaders. Um, uh, something that presumably has never really happened before and may may never come come around again. What what does a third term look like when you've had that kind of peak of, of both popularity? Mm. He was, we forget, very deeply popular for quite a long time as the, as, as all the state leaders were when, when, when that, that drama really hit its peak. But also, as you say, huge backlash because of some of the, the overreach and some of the more, I won't say autocratic, but some of the more kind of um, hardline moves that he's made. What does a third term in normal, in quote unquote normal circumstances, kind of look like? 
I don't know what it looks like in normal circumstances because we're not in lo- normal yeah. circumstances. <laughs> yeah. And I think the thing is, there's always this fork in the road, fork in the road moments where, you know, you have to either go down X path or Y path, and you just don't know what the other path looks like. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think um, a third term. And we've seen, you know, in the election campaign so far, and I think this has been quite interesting in that the Liberal Party has been making health announcements for quite some time now, election commitments. Labor obviously started making election commitments very recently and they're only just starting to catch up. They had an IVF, they made an IVF election Mm -hmm. commitment today, um, something that the Libs announced a couple of months ago. And I think there's so Labor's still catching up on health, which is a big issue. Mm. But the Libs have already moved on to cost of living with their two dollar trains and their two dollar public transport fare. And I think this time round, it seems as though that the Labor Party is playing catch up with the Liberal Party. It's been interesting watching mm. how, over the last couple of weeks, TVs TV news tends to have the opposition policy at the top of their news package Mm. and then relegate the government announcement to the bottom because the government announcements have so far been, I'm not going to say less interesting, but, yeah, they haven't captured, well, seemingly, they haven't captured the attention of TV audiences the way that opposition policies have. That's been an interesting observation that I've made. Um, And yet there are still internal gripes within the Liberal Party being played out in the media as they were on the weekend. Um, which, you know, you'd think is just the last thing they need at the moment. Yeah, I think the dysfunction at the, like, Liberal Party headquarters, it's... I don't think it'll be the reporting that has a derailing effect, but I think it'll be the actual events Mm. in the HQ that are having a derailing effect when you're a parliamentary team trying to sell policy, trying to present as an alternative, and then you have campaign headquarters that is so dysfunctional Mm. that they can't even help you. Mm. So you're supported with... Well, yeah. who's, who's your support base in the background? And then Tim Smith pops up every week. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Smeya. We can't wait to see all of your reporting during the election. And please come and join us again. We've been talking to Smeya Allenby, who, Illenby, oh my God, why is it so hard for me tonight? Who is Do the... you want me to make it harder? <laughs> <laughs> yes, go on, you tell me how I should have been pronouncing it all the show. Go on, please. Smeya Illenby. Oh, it sounds so much better. Um, uh, the aged political state reporter and, um, and... And Daniel Andrews, the revealing biography of Australia's most powerful premier, available at fine bookstores everywhere. Yes, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm actually really looking forward to reading that. I never thought I would want to read a book about, by, about <laughs> Daniel Andrews, but the reviews have been so amazing, I'm going to pick it up. So there you go, it works. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Things are not going well... I did, you know, I did say to you, Charlie, I literally, when, uh, when Samir walked out of the studio, then I just closed my laptop and started packing <laughs> yeah. up. It's like, oh, no, it was not... quitting time as far as, as Jess is concerned. <laughs> yeah, not quite there yet. Yeah. But, uh, for right-wing pundits in the US, uh, things have taken a slightly, uh, sour turn. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, um, for those of our listeners who haven't haven't been catching up with this, the uh, the online conspiracy theorist and and Olympic level 
bastard Alex Jones, and I'm not putting an allegedly in that one. <laughs> um, he's been he needs to he needs to make some coin back, Charlie. That's be true. <laughs> alleged, alleged. Um, uh, he has been um, ordered to pay over a billion dollars in Australian money, um, just under a billion in US. Uh, currency uh, to the parents of the victims of the Sandy Hook massacre. So, the, Well, this is the second trial. The second trial in, yeah. in just over in a, in a couple of months. One, one was in Austin, Texas. This one's in uh, Connecticut. And the, the um, amount in the first one seems very conservative now. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it, was about seven, it was about 80 million <laughs> in the first one. And you thought, that's quite a, quite a lot of money. <laughs> Turns out that was, uh, that, was, that was the... Um, that was the entree. Yeah, yeah. That, that was the more generous uh, <laughs> one on, on his behalf. But, but essentially, I mean, uh, Jones obviously has made a, a big part of his living over the last decade um, spreading the most vile slander and lies of, yeah. against the, the, the parents of murdered children. There's no other way to put it. And um, uh, there's been, you know, a lot of reporting in the last couple of weeks about the um, ad revenue kind of um, generated yeah, by his, yeah. his website from that. It's just, it's just so oh, I mean, despicable. The, the, yeah, the, 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 word, the word obscene profit really does apply in yeah. a few different ways here. I mean, and, and, it, is, and it is. It's, it's, it's somewhere between tens and, and, and over $100 million that this has netted him, possibly more. He was very, very obstructive during the case and wouldn't, send, wouldn't allow any access to his financial records, so we don't know how much money he spent mm. made out of this. But but forensic economists have looked into it and, and assessed it's 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 a huge huge amount. And the other thing to kind of consider, I suppose, we talked a bit about this before in quite an approving way, is that the, in the US it's extremely hard to lose a defamation case because the, the the onus is different and you have to prove malice and things like that. Well, freedom. Of, I mean, it is incredible to lose a freedom of speech case. In yeah, the US. anything. That, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You, you just think about how they die for that shit. Yeah, any yeah. day of the week. Yeah, 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 and. And in some ways, I, I really admire that. I think it's a good system in some ways. And but it, but it does show that there has to be certain things that you can be. There has to be things that there has to be acts of speech that are considered so heinous and and, yes. and damaging that that you can be punished for it. And I think yes, profiting off the off the grief of of people who've already been through the worst pain as, as bad a pain as humans are capable of feeling is one of those things. And uh, accusing them of. Um, of inventing, of inventing it, it, of the it, whole thing actors, being a hoax yeah, yeah. and the children never existing. Mm. Just disgusting, mm. man. So in some ways, so in some ways, this is, you know, a uh, sort of an, a moment of schadenfreude and, and, you know, obviously we all hope that the, the parents, nothing can give them back what's been taken from them, but hopefully they had some some short moment of, of satisfaction at least at this point. But the funny, I mean, there's a lot of, there's also, there's still... But unfortunately, his reaction would say otherwise. Well, yes, exactly. I mean, you, uh, it's, it's, there's nothing... Uh, there is there's nothing that's beneath someone like Alex Jones. There's nothing mm. he will not try and profit from. So, as the as the um, the verdict or the, the damages were being awarded, uh, he did a live stream reaction video to it, um, where he said basically he said explicitly he's never going to pay them any of this money, and he was directing his viewers to to his like. Infowars online store where they can buy vitamins and supplements. I mean, vitamin mineral fusion. They can buy from his Infowars store. He said uh, they want to scare us away from question questioning Uvalde or Parkland. We're not going away. We're not going to stop. So he's now mm. positioning himself as a martyr. As I a martyr, think, yeah. in a way, these huge um, f- amounts awarded 
can do a bit of a disservice because it just becomes comedy dollars a little bit, like a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. almost if you owe someone, becomes meaningless. Yeah, yeah. If you owe someone 10 grand, you're in trouble. If you owe them 10 billion, they're in trouble because, you, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, there is an element of that, but I suppose, um, and, and, and invariably this will be appealed and the, the amount will come down. So, um, uh, so you're right. It is. It's a very big, grabby headline figure, which maybe isn't isn't no helpful thing. But but the but the um, but but it, what it does say is, you know, he's he's wrong. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, the, the, that's the thing is the court process forced him in in public view to admit that Sandy Hook. 100% happened. Yeah. And if nothing else, that is something. That is as some correction. Obviously, there's no there's no shortage of um, because he, he's he is incapable of, apparently incapable of shame. He just will run, launch right back into a into a martyred free speech warrior thing happened. But it happened, and, and no one can pretend it didn't. And um, sadly, like moths to a flame, these sorts of things do draw out some of the worst takes from celebrities. Did you see MIA's tweet? <laughs> I did. I did. That, I mean, I, 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 I sort of, it, MIA is one of those people who, uh, whose music I adore and, and, and as, an, as an artist I hugely admire, who does, has for a long time struck me as one of the worst people. And this was actually something that I didn't think she was, I, I didn't think she was bad in this way, but it turns out. So she um, tweeted, if Alex Jones pays for lying, Shouldn't I should have some sort of English accent on, but anyway, okay. if Alex Jones pays for lying, shouldn't every celebrity pushing vaccines pay too? Hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which was actually, um, uh, I love Sleaford Mod's response, for fuck's sake. <laughs> that, is the, that is the exact response. It's like, oh, what, what fucking now? And there's the awful takes. There's also the kind of... Um, Elijah Wood, uh, what? <laughs> oh, MIA. Yeah. Um, but and the, and the other thing is, of course, like and my, my, my colleague Cameron sort of made this point today is that while financially it makes sense, financially and profile-wise it makes sense to do this against a figure like Alex Jones, and it's, you know, we're, we can all be glad that that happened, that the, the business model that he set up and the toxic way of thinking that he's managed to sort of inject by stealth into the mainstream now that so things like false flags are discussed by Republican candidates. Yeah. Um, well, they're, that, they're discussed openly on, the, on Fox News. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think that's. I think we've run out of time for our comedy story. Uh, yeah, no, unfortunately, <laughs> we, 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 we've used up all our fun time to talk about just awful, awful stuff. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> maybe we can be ch- more cheerful next week. Oh, you're, you're not going to be here? Yeah, so probably almost, in, by definition, it'll be more cheery. <laughs> Nashman's, um, ho- Nashman's hopefully, hopefully um, going to be able to come back into the studio next week. Otherwise, who knows who I'll be joined by. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Nadge Samble, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.